Well, good morning. It's good to be back at Oak Ridge, and uh, nice to see so many new faces. Lots of new faces this morning. Marguerite and I were just remarking to one another, isn't it great to see what God's doing, and we just need to keep looking into the future and uh, and trust the Lord to continue to build this church. Uh, we were in a couple of mega churches while we were gone. You know, mega church, like really, 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 really big operation, and uh, big music teams, really loud music. Anybody has a complaint here has no complaint, believe me. If you can't feel your ribs touching your backbone, you're not in real music. You understand what I'm saying? So um, anyhow, we had a great time. It's good to be back to our family, and uh, that's what you are. And uh, I see Anya Mostert over there has her David Jeremiah Bible out. I'm going to make sure that I do this right this morning. And actually, I'm going to actually look a bit more like David Jeremiah because I watched him on, was it Sunday evening, I guess, and he never moved from his pulpit, not once. I'm usually walking around everywhere, and I thought, you know what, if David Jeremiah can stand still, I can I can try that for a Sunday. It'll be okay, and so I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, yeah, we'll see how long it lasts, right? Okay, it'll last. Believe me, don't worry about it. It's an important theme that we're going to deal with this morning, and I don't want to make any mistakes, and I don't want to move far from the subject line. Uh, I take the Word of God seriously. It's important to communicate it accurately, and any little mistake or little glitch that you make, the devil uses to get people uh, off their game, but we don't want to do that this morning. I'm very thankful to Jane, who uh, translated all of this material uh, into Mandarin. If you're here this morning and you'd prefer to do this in Mandarin than English, um, Marguerite's got a copy of the message for you in Mandarin. I'll try to be faithful to the text, uh, but I'd like to pray first. I'd like to ask that the Lord would really speak to us. As a church, you know, it's interesting. By the way, isn't it great to see Lawrence back today? Is this your first Sunday back, Lawrence? Praise God. Okay? Praise God. Good to have you back. Yeah. It's so good to see Conrad over here. Conrad, we're praying for you. You know that? And, of course, we're praying for uh, Cliff and the family. And we wonder, you know, sometimes you wonder why these things happen. And I remember one time in my career when particularly nasty things were happening in my life. Somebody sent me an article. I don't know if it was from Christianity Today or Leadership Magazine. And uh, and that particular article focused on one thing. It focused on Job. And what people often forget about Job is that Job actually was trusted by God. The devil, actually God picked a fight with the devil. Right? He says, have you seen my man Job? Have you seen my man Job? I trust him. You can't break him. This is how we need to approach our life as believers. Terrible things can happen to us. Terrible things. Every time I read the Beatitudes, I'm reminded of this. You know, you get blessed, 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 blessed. And the last one is this. Blessed are you, right? Blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Be exceeding glad because great is your reward in heaven. I remember an old missionary came alongside me and said, Lou, God perfects people through suffering. 
Look at Moses. Look at Abraham. Look at any major saint. God perfects them through suffering. We as Christians need to keep that in mind once in a while. We're always looking for the easy way out. And it isn't always in the easy way that God works in our life. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you this morning for the opportunity, the privilege to share your word. I pray that as we look into the scriptures today and we think about the virgin birth, that we would hear exactly what you want us to hear. That you would speak to us clearly about why this truth is an important truth in the scripture. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I read uh, the Steve Jobs biography. And I don't remember a whole lot out of it. I remember two things about it. One, Steve Jobs was more nasty than I thought he was. The second thing I remember is this statement, the the ultimate sophistication is simplicity. Interesting statement. The ultimate sophistication is simplicity, and I think that fits the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles' Creed is taking these incredibly deep, deep truths, complex truths, and puts them in this little simple, short, progressive document that helps Christians do two things. It helps us avoid error, avoid heresy, And on the other hand, it helps us to affirm truth. And that, of course, is what we do. We start right off in the Apostles' Creed by saying, I believe in God. Good. You and many, many other people believe in God as well. And so the Apostles' Creed wants to begin defining what this God that we say we believe in actually looks like. And you've looked at three statements about that. I believe in God, the Almighty One, the Powerful One, greater than anybody else in the universe. I believe in God, Maker of heaven and earth, the Creator of all that is. I believe in God, the Father, the personal God, the God who enters into human history, the God who enters into human affairs. This God is not everybody's God. This God is not everybody's God. There are people out there who believe in God, but they believe in what we call deism. There's a God, created the world, said motion and said, good luck. There's another kind of God out there, the God of pantheism, who is actually, he didn't create God. I mean, he didn't create the world. He is the world. There's no separation between him and what is. You're God, I'm God, put us all together, we're all God, and somehow it works out. We're theists. We believe in a God who created the world, who's separated from the world, who's involved in the world. And by the way, a lot of people have now left the scene of believing in the same God we believe in. But we're not home free yet. There would be others this morning who say, Lou, you know what? I believe that too. I'm Jewish and I believe exactly what you said. 
a, a person who's Islamic might come to me and say, you know what, I, I believe in that as well. I mean, I, I might not push the personal as much as you would, and I'm not pretty sure, pretty sure I wouldn't call Father, God my Father, like you would, but for the most part, I believe those things. Well, maybe, but as you work your way down through this document of the Apostles' Creed, all of a sudden you recognize it is a Trinitarian document. Okay? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. And I believe in God the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, we're beginning to find ourselves alone. That's what happened when you were looking at that little passage which says, and we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We are now in the depths of Christian truth. It's right there that you enter into Christianity. It begins with Christ. And so, if the tradition of the apostles writing the Apostles' Creed is true, they're now going to give us a little bit more information. They're going to tell us something about this God. We believe in God, Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and now two little phrases. Who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Simply put, it tells us where He came from. And how he got here. Simple enough, right? It's the product. Christ is the product of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. The God-man is going to show up. But it's not that simple. And so people have struggled with this issue for years and years and years. Some struggle on logical grounds. Now think about it. You have an infinite God, right? Limitless in being, and you're going to stuff this limitless God into a little baby. It kind of is mind-boggling, isn't it? Until you think about the scripture and you see God able to concentrate himself in certain areas. For example, when you go to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, God's there in a way he isn't in any other place on the face of the earth. Or, when God speaks to Moses from a burning bush, there's a concentration of his being. This isn't totally incomprehensible. It might be mysterious, but it's not contradictory. It's the second thing we might want to think about, is people struggle with this, struggle with it on moral grounds. They ask the question, how is it that God can be involved with matter? Because in the mind of people living at the time that the scriptures were written, and at the time the Apostles' Creed was written, they were under Greek thinking. They were under a Greek worldview, which believed that that which was spiritual was good, and that which was evil was material. It was bad. So how could a holy God in any way take upon himself a human body and still maintain his holiness? That's the question. And there were several answers of that. I'm just going to touch on three of the answers. Maybe you've heard them before. Maybe you've thought about them before. Maybe you thought they were your own idea before. But some people said, you know what? 
One way of solving this problem is by saying that Jesus never had a real body. It just looked like he had a real body. Okay, this is called docetism. The Greek term is dokeo, to seem. It seemed like he had a body. But you can't read the Gospel of John and really believe that, can you? Okay, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus eats real food. He drinks real water. He sheds real tears. He experiences real pain. He bleeds real blood. Ergo, he got a real body, right? It just doesn't work. And then, of course, there was a, another group of people who said, well, he's God. This is kind of the, the Jehovah's Witness approach to it. He's God, but he's not the real deal. He's lower than God. See, there's, there's God, and he's holy and pure and separate. And then there's God the Spirit, and then there's differing kinds of angels, and some of them are pretty good, and some of them are very good, and some of them are just good. And then after that, you get to Jesus, who is a lesser God. But you can't believe that either if you believe the New Testament. Because in the book of Hebrews, what you're told constantly is what? Angels are created by him. Angels worship him. He has a better name than the angels. He has a better ministry than the angels. He has a better place than the angels. He is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So Gnosticism doesn't work either. There are others, more contemporary people, say, you know what? The whole story is a myth. Okay? Without doubt, Jesus is an incredible guy. He always was a really, really good guy. And then one day, this really, really good guy goes to get baptized. And at his baptism, the Spirit of God comes down on him. And all of a sudden, he becomes Son of God. And then, at the cross, he says to the Father, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The Spirit leaves. He becomes Son of Man. The whole thing is over. There are explanation after explanation after explanation after explanation. Sooner or later, you have to ask the question that John asks. Who is he who is Antichrist? It is the one who denies that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. So today we want to turn to the scriptures and we're going to ask ourselves a bit about this virgin birth. I mean, obviously the writers of the Apostle Creed thought it was important, right? They put in two little phrases about it. They think it's an important doctrine. Some people today think that it's a a doctrine you can just throw away. Well, if you take it out of the Bible, you don't lose anything by doing that. But I want you to understand that there is scriptural basis for it. We want to see that. Someone might say, well, you know what, you said there's scriptural basis for it. How much? In one sense, it doesn't make a difference how much. 
I mean, people will point to the fact, you realize, is this, is this microphone on? Because I'm getting a lot of echo from somewhere. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. I don't want to walk too far. Okay, so here, here's the deal. The deal is this. If you read the Gospels, only two of the Gospels mention the virgin birth. Mark doesn't mention it. John doesn't mention it. If you read the book of Acts, doesn't mention the virgin birth. If you read the epistles of Paul, all of the epistles of Paul, there is one reference to the virgin birth. It is a veiled reference to the virgin birth, found in Galatians 4. If you continue reading, okay, what happens is you come now to what are called the general epistles, that is, from the books of Hebrew through Revelation, not mentioned again. It's hardly mentioned in the New Testament. But here's what you need to understand. Where it is mentioned, it is spoken about clearly. And it's spoken about clearly in Matthew chapter 1. You come to Matthew chapter 1, you come to a genealogy. And when you come to this genealogy, this genealogy is a very, very interesting genealogy from many points of view. I'm not going to go into that genealogy today other than to notice that there is a verbal repetition. When a writer in the New Testament wants to make something clear, he understands that some people like me don't have such good hearing anymore, so they need to hear it more than once. Some people don't get it the first time. So in this particular genealogy, he says the same thing 39 times. Okay? 39 times. Father of, father of, father of, father of, father of. So it runs like this. Abraham is father of Isaac. Isaac is father of Jacob. Jacob is father of Judah. Judah is father of Pharaoh. I'm not going to go through the whole rest of the list. You can read that for yourself. Father of, father of, father of, father of. 39 times you come to the 40th guy whose name is Joseph and he says, Oh, husband of. That's what's supposed to happen. Husband of of Mary, who is mother of Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, how much more loudly could you say it, Matthew is not the father. But, just in case you missed it, you go to the last verse in chapter 1, and and you get this little phrase, and Joseph had no intimate relations with Mary until after the birth of Christ. You get the picture? Not Joseph. It's not Joseph. Now that takes us over to the second passage in the New Testament where the uh, virgin birth is spoken about clearly over in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You remember that an angel by the name of Gabriel is sent to deliver a message to who? To a virgin. And we are told in verse 27, two times in this one verse, the virgin's name 
was Mary. Now, the word virgin in the Greek is a word parthenos. And it can be translated two ways. A virgin could be a young woman. You can translate parthenos, she was a young woman. Or, in a more specific sense, this word can mean a young woman who has never had sexual relationship. So the question is, is some of the liberals would like to say, okay, for example, well, you know what, yeah, it wasn't Joseph, but there were other willing participants on the block somewhere. Maybe it was one of them. That's what Joseph actually thought, right? Joseph didn't say to Mary when he got the news, oh, gee, this is one of those virgin birth deals, right? He didn't say that. He said, I'm going to divorce you because you slept with somebody. Now, until the angel speaks to him, he doesn't understand that. But as you come now to the text, what does she say? The angel says to her, you're going to be her child. And she says, how can that be? I'm a young woman. No, no, no. She didn't say I'm a young woman. Young women can bear children. We all know that. She uses the word in the specific sense. How can that be since I am a virgin? I have never had relationship with any man whatsoever, anywhere. And the text backs this up a little. Because it tells us something about not only do we see Mary's character in what Mary says and what Mary does, she is found in high regard with regard to God. She's an incredible woman. This is the woman that God has picked to be the mother of his own son. I, I like to put it this way. She's the best of the best. Mary is the best of the best. Doesn't get any better than that. Well, actually, some people try to make it better than that. See, because being the best of the best and being perfect are two different things. And there are some people who try to make Mary perfect. I mean, wouldn't she have to be perfect to be the mother of Jesus, who was the Son of God? Makes some sense if you think about it, right? But... What do you do with texts like, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And what do you do with texts like, by the works of the law, shall no man or no woman be justified? So if Mary's perfect, how does she become perfect? If you start going down this track because Jesus was perfect, he had to have a perfect mother, then the perfect mother would have had to have a perfect mother, and the perfect mother would have had a perfect, perfect mother, and on and on and on goes. And and finally, this regress takes you back to Eve, and we know she wasn't perfect. Mary is incredible. But what you need to understand is that the perfection of Jesus does not come from his mother. It comes from his father. And that's what the angel says. She says, how's this going to happen? And the angel says, the Spirit of God is going to come on you, and the power 
of the Most High is going to overshadow you, and the child that you have is going to be called the Son of God. He will be a good man. He will be the God-man. The virgin birth is there. I want you to see something else today about the virgin birth, a biblical focus with regard to the virgin birth, because there's another repetition. Only this time, the repetition is in stories. It's a theme. You should always look for these repetitions, by the way, in the Bible. I I love the Christmas stories, don't you? I, I do. Listen to this story. Mary and Joseph, maybe you're thinking, what should we name the baby? The angel says, name the baby Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus. The word Jesus means Savior. He will save his people from their sins. And go over to Luke chapter 1. It's the one I like. I love angels. They're always sneaking up on people, scare the lemon daylights out of them, you know, tell them don't be fearful. Like, you just gave me a heart attack. Like, okay. The angel shows up, fear not! Like, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It'll be to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. What? A savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Next story, eight days later, there in the temple, there's an old man by the name of Simeon. He's promised that he won't die until he's seen what? The Savior. And what does he say? My eyes have seen your salvation. And there's an old lady there too by the name of Anna. And what does she do? She talks to everybody about this child. Everybody who's looking for the redemption of Israel. Salvation, 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 salvation. That's what the story of the virgin birth is all about. And you need to understand that the virgin birth is an integral part of God's salvation plan. That's what I want you to understand today. Well, first of all, the virgin birth is a fulfillment of a very, very old, old, old promise. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, the book of beginnings. It doesn't take you long to find out that things have gone wrong. Only two and a half chapters, actually. Adam and Eve have sinned. Everything has gone south. They're under a curse. They're fighting nature. They're fighting each other. They're removed from the garden. They're in need of salvation. The devil has them absolutely duped. They need help. Then you come to this little text where God is speaking to the devil and he says, not only are you going to crawl on the ground, but there's coming a seed from that woman. Her seed is going to crush the head of your seed. There's coming a child. This woman is going to have a child. And the child that she has is going to destroy you. By the way, I love this phrase, the seed of the woman. Because you know what the word is actually in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the sperm of the woman. Interesting. 
I'm not going to push that anywhere. I'm just going to say it's a very interesting phrase, and the writer of Genesis is trying to push you in a direction. There's a child coming from a woman. It's a very, very special child. Now, there's no mention of the virgin birth here. But if you keep reading Genesis, you you notice something else. As you start in chapter 12 of Genesis and make your way over to chapter 50, you find woman after woman after woman after woman. And all of those women have the same problem. Their problem is infertility. They cannot have a child. Think of it. Sarah cannot have a child. Rebecca cannot have a child. Leah cannot have a child. Rachel cannot have a child until the divine intervention of God. And all of a sudden you're seeing, here's this promised child, and this child is going to be a miracle child. God's going to do something special to bring this child about. We're just getting pictures at this point. But 700 years after the book of Genesis is written, Isaiah writes his prophecy, and now we know the virgin birth is all about, right? Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And it's not just that. Go over to chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. In verse 6, what? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The virgin birth is there as part of God's salvational plan. But you have to ask yourself, why the virgin birth? Is God just showing off? Kind of like, hey, this is a cool kind of miracle, right? Not everybody can do this. Virgin birth every now and then. That's not how God operates. God doesn't just do miracles to show off. So what's the purpose of this miracle? That's the question. What's the purpose of the miracle? And as we think our way through that, I want us to go back to the beginning again. Everything is great. Creation is good. The Garden of Eden is good. Adam and Eve are good. Everything is good. But as you know, it didn't stay that way. What happens? Adam sins. And here's the problem. When Adam sins, something happens to all humanity. You say, hey, wait a second. What about Eve? She sinned first. What about Eve? She sinned first. From Eve is coming the Savior. It's kind of not fair. For women are always saying "We we get a bad break in the Bible. You get a really big break here. You bring the Savior without the help of any man. From Adam, on the other hand, we inherit a lot of things. Go back to the beginning and we see Adam's sin. And as we look at Adam's sin, as we are in Adam, lots of bad things happen 
In Adam, we are under death. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. From Adam, we inherit condemnation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. From Adam, we inherit sin. We are under all of these things because of Adam. So somebody will ask the question, it's always asked, you know, like if Adam and Eve were so bad, why didn't God just make a new start? Good question. That's exactly what he's doing. It's a new start. Okay? The virgin birth gives us the basis for a new start. Think of this. Go back to that genealogy in Genesis. Begotten, begotten, right? Father of, 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 and come to Jesus. No father. And in that break, there is a break with Adam. Now, I have to tell you today, at this point, we are in the deep end of the pool. Okay, this is very, very deep theology. And theologians have argued about this for thousands of years, and I'm not going to settle that debate this morning. What I am going to focus on is what they don't argue about. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the new start. He's the second Adam. And there's two things that are really, really important for us to note. And the first of which is, he is holy through his father. And he's human through his mother. And that's really important because, because of his holiness, this second Adam is very much like the first Adam before Adam sinned. He can walk in God's presence. He can live in God's presence. He can have freedom in God's presence. Everything is incredible. That's what Christ can do because of the holiness of his character. He is cut off in some way from Adam. He can walk in God's presence and not die. So in Adam, look at this. In Adam, all die. Okay? In Christ... All are made alive. Difference between the first and second Adam. In Adam, there's condemnation. In Christ, there's grace. And the question is, how can we move from the one thing to the other? Well, the virgin birth makes not just for a new start, but it makes for a new way. Ever since the time of Adam, there has been a barrier between God and human beings. There have been symbols. There's been the symbol of Adam himself. I mean, Adam before the fall is the prototype of what you and I should be. To be pure and holy and righteous, living in the presence of God, living under God's rest. This is the picture of what God wanted for you. It's the picture of what God wanted for me. Of course, sin. There's a second picture in the Old Testament. It's the sacrificial system, how you can get access into the presence of God. That's what the sacrificial system is all about. Christ, if you read the book of Hebrews, not only comes as a new Adam, he comes as the new priest, he comes as the new sacrifice. And since he is holy, see, this is it. 
Since he's holy, he can, he's not under condemnation. And since he is holy, he can enter into the presence of God. And since he's holy, he's not under the curse. And since he's human, he can relate to us. He can identify with us. He can experience the temptation that we experience. He can substitute himself for us. He can walk into the presence of the Father and say, I take Lou's place. I take Marguerite's place. Put in your own name. I take their sin. I take their condemnation. I take their death. He can forgive you and set you free. He dies our death so that we can live his life. That's what Jesus does for you. It's what Jesus does for me. Enters the presence of God, presents himself as a sacrifice, and says, I died their death. I set them free. Let them live in Christ forgiveness. In Christ freedom. In Christ life. Only because that bond with Adam is broken through the virgin birth somehow. And this new man Christ can enter into the very presence of God and purchase eternal redemption for you and me. I'll tell you what. I don't want to get rid of the virgin birth. This isn't one of those little doctrines you can just throw away and say, well, it didn't mean that much anyhow. It means a great deal. It allows Christ to be human and divine, holy, righteous, just. Experience who we are. Move into the presence of God and purchase eternal redemption. I hope you know that. I hope you know that today. It's part of the mechanism of how God saves you and how God saves me. Let's pray together.